PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. This podcast is sponsored by Eclipse. Eclipse has helped physical therapists streamline their practices since 1985. Eclipse is a comprehensive all-in-one system that handles your billing, scheduling, and clinical documentation. Find out more at www.ineedeclipse.com or call 1-800-966-1462. These patients that most needed physical activity were those that we really couldn't give a walking program to. Walking is something any patient can do almost anywhere. Even to the point of something like 10,000 steps a day, if patients had sort of a weekend break in that, that they didn't see foot breakdown. The good news is that people with diabetes and peripheral neuropathy can increase their walking. Welcome to this PTJ discussion podcast, the Feet First Trial, walking exercise programs for patients with diabetic peripheral neuropathy. This podcast is based on a paper reporting fall outcomes from the Feet First randomized controlled trial published in the November 2010 issue of PTJ. Authors Dr. Robin Cruz and Dr. Joseph Lamaster discussed their paper with Dr. Michael Miller, who was guest editor of PTJ's Diabetes Special Issue, published in the November 2008 issue. And now, Michael Miller. My name is Michael Miller, and I'm a professor in the program in physical therapy at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. This afternoon, we'll be speaking with Robin Cruz and Joe LeMaster at the University of Missouri, and we'll be discussing their paper, Fall and Balance Outcomes After an Intervention to Promote Leg Strength, Balance, and Walking in People with Diabetic Peripheral Neuropathy the feet-first randomized controlled trial. So I'd like to introduce our participants. Dr. Robin Cruz, could you give our listeners a brief history of your background and your role in this project? Certainly. I'm a research associate professor in the Department of Family and Community Medicine at the University of Missouri School of Medicine in Columbia, Missouri. My research areas generally focus on older adults, although not exclusively. And at the time, I had another fall study going on, so Joe decided it would be a great idea and give me an opportunity to look at falls again. And so I got involved in the study after the data were all collected, specifically to look at falls, which is an outcome of interest to me. Very good. And Dr. Joe LeMaster, how about you? What was your role in this project? Well, I was the principal investigator, um, just to I'm also at the same department that Robin is at. This study was birthed really out of work that started at the University of Washington in Seattle from 2000 to 2002. I was doing an MPH in epidemiology up there and began to work with Gail Riber, who had conducted a randomized controlled trial looking at the effect of optimal diabetic footwear on foot reulceration in people with diabetes and peripheral neuropathy. So I joined Dr. Riber's team, and one of the secondary outcomes that was a part of that randomized controlled trial was the effect of physical activity on foot reulceration. So that's how I got interested in this whole thing. And after we published some other work from that randomized controlled trial, it led into this study. 
Thank you. That's interesting, Joe. So we've got this group of patients who are at high risk for skin problems, particularly skin breakdown, but we want to keep them active, try to increase strength and activity, but we don't want them to fall or hurt themselves. Is that the gist of it? I think that's right, Mike. In the world, both of diabetes and everyone else that was looking after people with diabetic peripheral neuropathy, the American Diabetes Association, the American College of Sports Medicine, all recommended that people with peripheral neuropathy should limit their weight-bearing exercise because of the risk of foot ulcers. But on the other hand, as I'm sure our listeners will know, both of those bodies recommend that people with diabetes should be more active, that they should be participating in moderate to vigorous activities, such as walking briskly at least 30 minutes per day most days of the week. So we're in a bit of a dilemma. These patients that most needed physical activity were those that we really couldn't give a walking program to. And remembering that most people, especially older people with diabetes, that walking is going to be the easiest thing for them to do for physical activity. So this seemed to be an important thing to try to get to the bottom of. And what were your key outcome measures, Robin, and why did you choose those? So what were the most important results? The primary purpose of this was to look at falls to see if the exercise intervention either increased falls because people were out and about and exercising more or perhaps decreased falls because they had successfully strengthened their lower extremities and improved their balance. So the primary outcome of interest was the number of falls after the start of the intervention And then we also looked at several strength and balance measures that had been measured at 0, 3, 6, 9, and 12 months throughout the study. We found that the two groups, the intervention group and the control group, there were no differences in the falls between groups. Um, We were also a little concerned that some participants were in the study longer simply because it took longer to get them to come in for their final visit. So we also looked at the number of falls equalized to a certain amount of time, like falls per month or rate, and we also found that that didn't differ between groups either. So we found these folks that were out walking didn't fall more, and we were pleased to see that. We also didn't find that participants had improvements in their lower extremity strength or the balance measures with the exception of one unusual test, which was the one-legged stand with their eyes closed, which did show an improvement in the intervention group, but we're not quite sure what to make of it because it's a novel test that hasn't been widely used. Right. The strength actually decreased a bit in each group, and I guess that's what we would expect to see in this population with a chronic disease. You know, certainly one of the reasons why that could be would be the intensity of the intervention. Uh, Joe, could you speak to that? Do you think the intensity of the strengthening exercises was appropriate? Would you do anything differently with that intervention? Absolutely. I think that we felt that the frequency with which we had contact with the patients might have been a little bit insufficient in this study. They were only coming in and meeting with a physical therapist for an hour per week. She saw them weekly and they would practice the leg strengthening and balance exercises during that time. They were supposed to have three sessions at home during which they practiced those exercises that they were taught. And most of them were, I think, making an attempt at it. But 
has to be said that this was a fairly impaired group of people. A number of them had had falls in the previous year. They were able to walk, but none of them were participating in active exercise more than 20 minutes twice a week. Some of them were very inactive indeed, and so it was a big jump up for many of them to start exercising to the degree that the physical therapist was asking them to do. And some of the exercises were fairly challenging, like standing on one foot, as Robin was saying, or fairly novel, things that they wouldn't have done before. And then the other piece is that the frequency of contact with the therapist, which was most intense, was only during the first three months of the study. After that, the patients were handed over to a research nurse who had been trained specially to use motivational interviewing to try and help patients move along through their exercise goals. And they were supposed to continue doing the leg strengthening and balance exercises, but the emphasis was really more on the walking program in the second half, or the second two-thirds, really, of the study. Having said that, I don't think we saw very many changes at six months either. So There was a little bit less decline in the intervention group than in the control group, but it wasn't statistically significant, so it's hard to say what that, means. Uh, what that yeah. even means. Yeah. And do you have a sense that the motivational calls by the study nurse were useful? I think that they were very useful and a good start to what we were hoping to do. When she called the participants... Her aim was to help them set what we call SMART goals. SMART goals are goals that are specific, measurable, achievable, such as losing a couple of pounds a week, not 10 pounds a week, realistic in a sense that they deal with the patient's own barriers, and time-sensitive, so something that you could monitor with the patient whether they had achieved them. And the nurse was calling every two weeks to help the people in this regard. And so I think that it was really very important that those calls were being made Having said that, the way that it actually works, motivational interviewing doesn't force people to make progress on their goals. And so the question is how much those motivational calls were actually helping the people continue forward motion. Yeah, that also seems like such a challenge within a research project to give meaningful intervention that's specific to the patient. Clinicians can tailor their intervention, and so oftentimes in research, we're bound to a particular standardized approach. So I like that you all had this built-in flexibility, because certainly if patients don't feel that it's meaningful for their own situation, they're not going to participate. And Robin, you're part of the Department of Family and Community Medicine, and it seems to me like one of the real novel aspects of this study is that it was community-based, and it's something that presents unique challenges. Could you tell us a little bit more about the approach of a community-based study as opposed to a clinic-based study? Well, walking is something any patient can do almost anywhere whereas pulling people into a lab or a gym will maybe have great results but be a little bit less applicable further on down the road. People might not have the money or the ability to travel to other locations to exercise. So doing a community-based exercise program that involved primarily walking, if successful, seemed more translatable to practice. 
Do you see this need for community research growing? And I guess just within that, if you could talk a little bit more about the makeup of your interdisciplinary team, could you speak just a bit more about the future of community-based research and also the makeup of that team as you see it? Okay, I'd be happy to do that, Mike. So this particular study was community-based in that the intervention took place predominantly in the community. Patients were meeting with a physical therapist, much as they could in a physical therapy office anywhere around America, and then they were supposed to be practicing the exercises in between the times that they saw the physical therapist, so very much like what you'd experience in practice when you're giving a patient an exercise prescription. On the other hand, when we are talking about community-based research, you hear the term community-based participatory research. And this really means that the patients are more involved actually in the design of the study, in the collection of the data, in the analysis of the data, and in its dissemination. And in particular, I think that that sort of an approach can help with the adherence to the protocol. So when we're trying to get patients to be more involved, it seems very important for them to be involved in the actual conduct of the study. And there's a very big move both at the National Institute of Health and in foundations around the country to move us towards that kind of research. And we've been embracing that here at the University of Missouri. One important part of that, as you mentioned, is the interdisciplinary approach There were those of us who were in the Department of Family Medicine, myself, Dr. Cruz. There was also another senior epidemiologist, Dr. David Mayer, who's been one of our mentors. We also had people from biostatistics, from nursing. Dr. Miller yourself had given us some advice, and we had physical therapists who had been working in the community and doing research. So that was sort of the makeup of our team. Having said that, this study was not community-based participatory research in the way that I was discussing it earlier. We didn't have patients who were on the advisory group that were helping us form the intervention and helping us guide it all the way through. We've moved more towards that subsequently and believe that those type of studies will increase adherence to the intervention and to the study protocol in general and there's quite a lot of evidence around the country that that's actually working. That's fascinating, Joe, and I can't help but think as we move to more outcome-based research that we'll be moving to more models of community-based research such as you've described. Could you give us in a nutshell the take-home message from this study and feel free to also include results from the parent study which described the weight-bearing activity? Well, the good news is that people with diabetes and peripheral neuropathy can increase their walking without worrying that they're going to really increase their falls. They can get out and about and walk. So a modest program such as the one that the participants in this study followed won't harm people, which is really good because previously it was thought, well, we can't let these people exercise or walk because they're going to fall. They're going to have worse foot ulcers. In the parent study, foot ulcers didn't increase despite patients increasing their activity and walking. Just to add on to that, Mike, I think that the other thing that we came to a conclusion about is that it's very difficult to help patients of this nature to increase their activity a very substantial amount. 
so that while we didn't see increases in injuries, either falls or foot ulcers, as a result of participating in this level of exercise, one also has to wonder whether this level of intensity of exercise was really going to achieve the changes in cardiovascular health that one would like to see happen in this population. Good. Thank you for that summary. And I would agree that the big contribution from this work is that you didn't see fall or skin breakdown. And so we just need to see if a more intense intervention could show even more improvements and problems with severe foot deformity and or peripheral vascular disease are going to complicate things. Would you agree with that, Joe? I certainly would, Mike. I think that it's critically important to emphasize that out of these studies, especially out of the parent study, our patients were observed as closely as we possibly could to detect foot ulcers as they occur. They had a hotline to call in whenever any kind of skin breakdown happened, and they were frequently examined by the physical therapist during the early part of the study. Um, One of our colleagues, a senior podiatrist in the diabetic foot community, David Armstrong, has recently called for thought to be given to dosed physical activity to patients of this nature. In the 1970s, one of the leading lights in this whole area, Dr. Paul Brand, looked at increasing doses of physical activity. He was more looking at it in an animal model, but found that as long as there were occasional breaks given in regular physical activity, even to the point of something like 10,000 steps a day, if patients had sort of a weekend break in that, that they didn't see foot breakdown. But the idea now more and more is that we should begin thinking about dosing physical activity just as we would dose other sorts of medications or other kinds of interventions for patients. And I think it's a very good thing for us to think about as we go forward into other studies. I like that idea, Joe, giving carefully controlled doses of activity as steps. And uh, so I want to thank you both again. So Dr. Robin Cruz and Joe LeMaster at the University of Missouri, thank you for this fine work and for participating in this podcast. Thanks very much for having us. Yes, thank you. This has been a production of Science Audio, online at www.scienceaudio.net. Send us your comments or suggestions about this or other PTJ podcasts via email ptj at scienceaudio.net or voicemail 626-593-7825. Thanks for listening.